Well, um, it's really a privilege for me to, uh, to stand up here and be able to preach to you guys. Uh, it's not something I take lightly. And so um, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be able to do this. So go ahead and uh, in your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. John chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 31 through 36. Um, one of, w- let me tell you, <clears throat> one of my favorite shows is a show called Gold Rush. You guys ever heard of it? Yeah? I mean, like three or four of you. Um, I should say one of our favorite shows. I should say, should say one of my favorite shows because I don't know if Tori really cares that much about it. Um, well, it comes on Discovery Channel, and it's, it's basically a soap opera for men. Um, you know, you have, these, you have these group of guys. There's, there's all sorts of drama that takes place on the show. Um, you have these bunch of guys uh, from Washington State led by a father and son team. And so they, they go out to the Alaskan wilderness to, to dig for gold. But it's not just your, not just your shovel and, and, uh, and hoe kind of digging either. I mean, they, ta- they spend like a couple hundred thousand dollars on equipment. Um, to take this up there to, to dig for gold. Um, I mean, these guys sold everything they had to make it happen. Um, th- they're a bunch of down-and-out guys. A lot of them were unemployed, and th- they, they said they were looking for just some way to, to, to be able to support their families. It, it quickly becomes um, obvious that, that their good intentions for supporting their families was actually a cover for striking it rich. This happens, uh, this happens when, when they work for months on end and only find a couple ounces of gold. For one guy, he nearly goes insane. He, he starts getting in fights with everyone um, because his dream of being rich, his dreams of being rich are basically being crushed as every day goes by. His pursuit of happiness had hit some sort of roadblock. The pursuit of happiness... I mean, it, it seems that that's a phrase that we get our idea of freedom, isn't it? Um, even in our Declaration of Independence, we have some called the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Our happiness and freedom seem to depend upon one another. We think that without a certain thing, we can never be satisfied. Our entire life satisfaction is at stake. So what do we do? How do we get freedom? One of the things that, that we find freedom in our culture is education. Um, all across campuses uh, of the U.S., you'll see the phrase, the truth will set you free. They say, they say truth is found in education. And if you have enough education, you'll attain freedom. The more education, the more education you have means the, the better job that you'll have, which means that, that, means that the, better, the more money that you'll make. And money's where it's at, Right? If you could only have one more degree, then you'll have freedom. And then once those multiple degrees are, are, are obtained, then you, then you have to have a good job. I mean, a, a, jo- a degree without a job does you no good. I mean, that's the whole purpose behind you spending four, six, eight years in school. That one job will just make your life complete. I mean, you have all the skills and talents for it, right? The planets seem to be aligning for you to be in this one job or industry. It's the one thing you're passionate about, and I'm sure it would really bring you the most freedom that you could ever imagine. I mean, also, you've got to have a job that's going to earn you the big bucks, and if you could have that job, then you'll really have freedom. You won't have to worry about not having a nice car or not having a nice house, or maybe you could even have a second or a third house. 
mean, you've always wanted to travel, and I mean, that's really where real freedom lies, right? Being able to jet set across the world and to and and spending your vacations in the most exotic locales, sipping the best frozen beverages money could afford. I mean, that's real freedom. If you could have the, all these things, then your conscience will ease, and then you'll be set. Then you can have freedom. Or what about the job that would give you great power and influence? I mean, working for the man just stinks, doesn't it? I mean, you never, have, you never have any freedom when you have to come in, punch the clock, and make sure your boss actually thinks you're doing work. I mean, if you could just have a job that, that gives you great power and influence, then, then you have made it. I mean, maybe you'd actually work hard, and, and you're sure that you'd make a phenomenal boss. You'd be gracious to all your employees. You'd give them all the Christian holidays. You'd give them all the bank holidays. And to show how generous you really are, you give them Arbor Day, right? Because, I mean, that's the epitome of being generous. That's right. You'd be the best boss ever, you tell yourself. You believe the more power you have, the more freedom you have. If you could only have a position of influence, then you'd have freedom. Or maybe, maybe it's in your autonomy that you find freedom. You say that you th- you say what you think, and that makes you different because no one would ever dare say dare say the things that you say. You think differently. It's quite obvious that you dress differently. I mean, <clears throat> you dress just so that you can be your own person. But it's really interesting that you you do dress at the same place that all the other people shop who who want to look different, right? There's really nothing different about you. You want to look different, sound different, think different. And do everything that's different from the rest of society because it's in your differentness that you find freedom. If you could be more different than, any, than, than everyone else, then you'd be free. Then you'd experience freedom. Or maybe, maybe you're in a place right now where your current life situation is that you are experiencing great freedom. I mean, you believe you have it, but the reality is, is that you're terrified of losing it. You live life in fear because you have no idea how you'll cope with losing the one thing that gives you happiness and freedom. What would happen if you lost your fortune or if you lost the approval of your boyfriend or if you lost that job that that gives you the feeling of being in control? What then? You see, we all have those those things that, that our happiness and freedom hinges on. You don't have it and you're trying to get it. Or you already have it and you're trying to keep it. You think you're trying to keep your freedom, but what you're really doing is prolonging your imprisonment. These things have become your Lord and Master. And in a great twist of irony, you're imprisoned by the very need to keep your perceived freedom. Which, really, which never really made you happy in the first place. Tonight we're going we're gonna to be taking a look at what the Bible says about freedom. You see, the things that, the things that we desire are, really aren't new. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, the quest for freedom, the quest for complete personal greatness is as old as the earth. Um, <clears throat> in, the book, in the first book of the Bible, you, we see God created, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And Satan embodies a serpent and then tempts them to, to, to question the creator's authority. The serpent asks Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat at that one tree in the garden? The reason he doesn't want you to eat it because he doesn't want you to be like God. You know that's what he meant, right? I mean, you could be great. You could have all the freedom you've ever imagined. And there'll be no consequences. You'll be able to live life how you, how you see fit to do so. 
You'll have no boundaries. Imagine, you could be like God. You could be your own God. So let's fast forward now to the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. So if you've got that, if you've got that handy, go ahead and uh, take a look at that. I'll take a sip of water. All right, <clears throat> John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. I'm going to read that for us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So let me explain a little bit about what's, <clears throat> what's going on here in this text. Because you're introduced, you know, you come in and you see that Jews are believing. So Jesus, I mean, here... We, we find Jesus in the midst of another argument with the Jews. It seems to be something that continually happens throughout the book of John. They claim that they believed he was God, but, but Jesus sees right through them. He sees their heart. He knows, he knows that, that they see him basically as a vending machine. They want more bread. They want more healing, and he sees right through that. Here are people who think they have it figured out and think they know Jesus and, and, and think that they... And think they know what their life should look like. But when it comes down to it, they don't really know. There's some truth that they aren't really getting. So here we find them in a place where they think they've gotten it all figured out. And in verse 32, you can look in your Bible here, verse 32, Jesus tells them that the truth will set them free. And the Jews are going to have no part of it. I mean, they're already hearing some things that they aren't agreeing with, so they're going to they're fight Jesus over it. And they tell Jesus in verse 33, we are the offspring of Abraham. We're Abraham's seed. Don't you know that we've never been enslaved? Now, now hold on just a second. Did you catch that? They just said that they've never been enslaved. I mean, isn't that kind of like saying that a double rainbow is not awesome? I mean, we all know the history of the Israelites. I mean, the Israelites had certainly been slaves. I mean, their entire heritage was one of slavery. They've been slaves to Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylonia, then Persia, then Macedonia, then Egypt again, and then Assyria, and then finally Rome. How could they miss the point? See, they've been enslaved in the past, and they're currently experiencing it. But it just doesn't stop there. Look what, look what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. Now, just in case you didn't know, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, he's getting ready to really drop some truth on you. So you better watch out, all right? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. And just as much as he's trying to get them to understand it, he's, he's trying to get us to understand the same thing. And that's that our sin enslaves us. Our sin enslaves us. Jesus tells the Jews to whom he's speaking, look, you think you have it all together. You think just because you have all the right bloodlines that you're able to live in freedom. But, but what you don't recognize is that your perceived freedom is really imprisonment. And you're held captive by the darkness that's in your heart. 
You see in verse 34, we're told that the, the real problem we have is sin. And the reason you sin is because you're a sinner. Did you catch that? You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your problem and my problem is this. We were born into a state of sin and we sin because it's just natural to us. I think most of us have really heard this for a long time, right? We hear preacher, people preaching us saying, you, you sin, you're a sinner. We know that we sin. We catch ourselves lying. I mean, we steal internet from our neighbor's Wi-Fi, right? <clears throat> we still, I mean, we, we get angry and curse at the thought of Starbucks running out of a uh, pumpkin spice latte. We cheat our employers out of Tom. See, these are, these are sins. They're easy to recognize and when, they take, when, they, when they take place, but there's something else that's just as dangerous, and it's the sin that remains in our heart. The actions that we commit are just the natural outworking of the things that are actually taking place in our heart. The real problem is not trying to get you to stop looking at porn or lying or cheating or stealing or having sex with your girlfriend. The real problem is dealing with the state of your heart. Your actions are the symptoms of the state of your heart. Your actions are the symptoms of the state of your heart. Your heart is enslaved to sin. You have a sin problem. Sin is your master and you're its slave. I can hear your thoughts right now. I mean, first of all, that's a little creepy if I could hear your thoughts, but I can hear you. I can, I can just imagine you thinking, yeah, that's, Jeremy, that's great and all. Um, but I'm really not that bad of a person. And all I really want is a good job. I just want my kids to grow up and be awesome. I just want to be able to have a nice house. I just want to be able to retire at the age of 65 and play golf the rest of my life. Let me show you something. Sin is just not the universal wrongs of the things that you do. It also consists of the things that you must have in order to make you happy, satisfied, and free. And we call these idols. When you take the good gifts of God and place them in place of God, you have a case of idolatry. And idolatry is sin. If you need Jesus plus something else to make you happy, then you have a case of idolatry. The things are popping in your head right now, aren't they? You've told yourself that you need those things to make yourself happy. If you could only have it, then you'd be free. In verse uh, 35, Jesus clarifies a little more what it means to be a slave, the slave to sin. So look at that. Verse 35, he says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. Your sin, your idols, the things that you seek significance in will enslave you. So let me ask you a question. What happens to a slave? What's the life of a slave look like? A slave is known by what he does, right? A slave's identity is bound up in the duties he must perform. A slave doesn't, 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 have the, doesn't have the freedom to enjoy the things of his master. The master says, go dig a ditch, go plow a field, and then you'll have food and a bed. A slave must obey before he's rewarded. A slave lives in fear of his master's punishment. If the master didn't have a good day, then I'm pretty sure the slave won't have one either. 
A slave is used. And when the slave's job is done, he's kicked out of the house with nothing to show for it. The life of a slave is a terrible life. Listen, your sin will become your master and it will tyrannize you. Your idols will drive you into the ground. And if you don't have them, you'll be crushed. If you ever achieve it, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to keep it. Think about this. How many, how many of you guys like to play golf? Raise your hand. Like to play golf? All right. I like to play golf. Let's just say I attempt to play golf. Uh, typically, it doesn't look, doesn't look too pretty. Um, it, what's really interesting to me about golf is that um, one, it's one of the few sports that you can really play all by yourself, all by your lonesome. Um, and golf standard is called a par. And typically, par is somewhere around 72. And that's how your game is measured. Um, <clears throat> for me... That standard, let me tell you, is way too high. It should be more like, I said, like 120, because I can never get anywhere near 72. So anyways, let, let's say that I set a goal, I want to shoot a par of 72. So I want to hit the ball and actually stay out of the trees and stay out of the water. I want to not kill chipmunks and ducks. I'm pretty sure that's called hunting and not golf. <laughs> so to be, able to, to be able to do this, I spend two days a week at the course. So, you know, it takes about three hours per round. If I'm playing by myself, I can jet right along. And so, so I spend six hours a week making my game better. I get better and better, and I eventually cut my score down to 80, and that's pretty dang good, if I might add. <laughs> now, it becomes evident that if I really want to get better, I need to spend four days a week. Now, my life revolves around golf, and then that magical day comes. I shoot a 72, believe it, and it occurs to me that now, I've, now that I've attained my goal, I have to keep up with what I've done, what I've been doing to be able to remain there. So I have to practice because, you know, practice makes perfect. That's what my baseball coach always told me as a kid. So I begin to ignore my wife. I ignore work. I begin to skip out early at work so I can go play golf. You see how golf and its standard, its par of 72 has become my master? It tyrannizes me. Everything I do revolves around it. And the same thing is happening in your life. Your sin has enslaved you. Your idols have become your master. You've taken God's good gifts and you've created them to be methods by which you seek value, by which you seek your value. You guys remember the movie Rocky? You know, yo, Adrian! You guys remember that? You remember when he's getting ready to fight the champ? Rocky says... If I could only go 15 rounds with Apollo Creed, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Do you, do you hear that longing for significance? What do you have to do to prove you're not a bum? That thing is your idol and you're enslaved to it. Some of you say that, <clears throat> some of you say you're a believer, like we see in verse 31. But following Jesus feels like duty. If you don't go to church, if you don't read your Bible, if you don't say your Hail Marys, then you you feel like trash. All you've ever known Jesus to be is a tyrant who demands your service. And if you serve him, then you'll feel freedom, but only maybe for an hour or so. But that's not who Jesus is, y'all. That's slavery. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get the Jews in this passage to understand. You're enslaved. You're looking for freedom and significance. So what do you do? 
How can you ever make the sense of a burden go away? Where do we turn? Let's look at what Jesus says in verses 35 and 36. It says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Look at the contrast Jesus draws here. A slave has to go back to his slave's quarters at the end of the day. A son gets to go home to his bed, to his father's house. A slave has to continually work to to remain a member of the household. A son doesn't have to do anything to stay in the house. He's a son. A slave has no access to the master's affections, but a son does. A slave has no access to his master's inheritance, but a son does. A slave doesn't have freedom, but a son does. Look at Romans 8.15. It's going to pop up here on the screen. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You see, adoption frees us. Adoption frees us. It frees us from having to earn our spot in the Father's house. A son is safe. A son is accepted. You want to know what? You want to know why you feel like you can't live up to God's standards? First of all, you can't. You can't earn God's approval. Secondly, it's because you've never experienced the Father's adoption. You see, God's approval has been earned for you. It was earned for you by Jesus' death on the cross. And it's through adoption that we can taste that freedom. Many of you have heard parts of the gospel before but you're, you're really having trouble understanding. I mean, you've heard that Jesus, fully God, humbled himself as a man to come to this earth. You heard he lived a sinful life. You've heard that he died in your place to put away the debt of your sin. And this is all true, and it's no less the gospel. These things are still true. But did you know he adopted you? From before time, God set out to adopt you as sons and daughters. He wants to pour out his love and acceptance on you. Jesus left the father's side to become an orphan in order to gain the father's approval on your behalf. Your acceptance is not based on what you can do. Your acceptance is based on what Jesus has done. You're a son. You're a daughter of the king. And he's lavished upon you an eternal inheritance. Will you recognize it and respond to it? See, God right now is calling you out of your slavery. He's adopted you. He wants to give you true life. But you must believe him. You must believe what he's saying. Right now, a couple things are happening across the room. Some of you are fully aware that you're a sinner and that you seek idols. But you come to God repenting of that and thanking him that that in spite of your sinful desires that you're still adopted, no less a child of God. You're preaching the gospel to yourself and that's good. Some of you are starting to get this idea that, that God loves you. And God loves you perfectly because of what Jesus has done for you. And today you need to take a step of belief. So today, right now, where you are, you just need to pray, God, I'm, I'm just beginning in this thing, and I, and I want to believe. I want to believe what you've done for me. I want to become a son. I want to become a daughter. You want to be in that place where there's unconditional acceptance and approval. 
Then there are those of you who maybe you feel too dirty for God to love you. Your sin condemns you as Numbers says, um, be sure your sin will find you out. You're having a tough time escaping sin's condemnation on you. Through Satan's reign of sin, he's placed you in a, in a, he's placed in you a fear of death and a desire to be enslaved by sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, made us alive together with Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation towards those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been adopted. You've been afraid to worship Christ. Your sin no longer has a hold on you. Will you believe it? Then there are some of you who are you're having a hard time thinking about having a loving father. You've Maybe you've never had a father. Maybe your father was abusive to you. It's hard for you to understand what that's like. And I don't make light of this because I understand that that can really hurt. Or you're convinced that you can't escape your sin. It's hereditary. There seems to be nothing that can free you from it. I promise, again, I'm not trying to belittle you, but that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to waste away in self-pity and think to yourself that there's no hope. 1 Peter 1.18 is going to pop up on the screen here. It says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You know, your identity does not have to be that of a victim. You can be free from that. You were, you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A rescue has been made for you. You've been adopted. You've been, a freed, from your, you've been freed from your slavery. Nothing but God's pleasure will satisfy the longing of significance that you're feeling. <clears throat> My wife and I are in the process of adopting two children from Columbia. We've been in the process for about 15 months now. And uh, we're waiting to be approved by Columbia before we, before we even go any further. Eventually, one day we'll be approved. Um, we'll see a, a picture of those beautiful babies and we'll immediately fall in love with them. We'll travel down to Columbia and we'll, we'll become two parents of, of two orphans. That's going to be an awesome day. And we'll go through a legal process that makes them our son and daughter. And we're going to come home and we're going to lavish gifts on them. um, And we're going to lavish all the gifts we've ever imagined giving them. See, our accepting them will have nothing to do with with them earning their approval. There's nothing they can do right now to earn their approval of us. They'll come home with us. They'll get our last name. They'll immediately get everything we have. They'll immediately in some way become, uh, become heirs of ours. And they immediately become heirs of the young family fortune, which I'm sure is up to about $4.75 right now. (laughs) Despite how they respond to us, we'll love them. They'll be our children. God does the same for you. He adopts you. He gives you a new name. It's not Brian the porn addict or Sally the adulterer or Joshua the greedy. Your identity now is in Christ. God, through Jesus, looks down on you and says, Behold, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. You've been adopted. Additionally, you've not just been freed from your present pursuits or freed from your past failures. You've been freed to enjoy and worship God in the future because of adoption, because of the gospel. 
You don't have to be afraid of God's wrath because God poured, poured out his wrath, which was meant for you on Jesus. He poured out his wrath that was meant for you. He poured that out on Jesus. Jesus took God's wrath on your behalf. This means that you don't have to do religious things that appease God or to make yourself feel better. These things are slavery. When you know and believe in the grace and love that the Father has poured out on you, in your adoption, in him reconciling you to himself and giving you satisfying life in the present, you worship. Your response to your adoption is worship. You desire to know the Father. You desire to spend time with the Father. Your response to your adoption is that you put forth effort to know it more. And abiding becomes your new reality. Abiding becomes your new reality. Look back at verse 31, 32. I bet you're wondering, well, he skipped some. What's up with that? Verse 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This word abide here means to remain, to dwell, to continue. See, once you're adopted, your desires change. Your patterns change. Your life changes. You don't do these things because you you want to clean up your act so you can be adopted. You're in a mess that won't allow yourself to change. You're a slave, remember? You need to be bought out of your slavery. Imagine, imagine you're a slave and someone comes to buy you out. Someone comes, to, they want to rescue you from your slavery. They say, so no more ditch digging, no more beatings, no more starvation. And then they tell you you're going to go home with them. And then they're adopting you. And then they tell you that everything that's theirs is becoming yours. When you're adopted and you experience a new reality that God loves you in spite of who you are, and that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you, this new reality begins to change you. You're no longer a bum in the street. You've been elevated to an heir. You now have access to the Father and its pleasures towards you. So you abide, you remain, you dwell in Jesus' teaching because that's where you find freedom. We're led to believe, looking here at this passage, that, that, that this freedom that Jesus is talking about is both instantaneous and slow. It's like, boom, you go from slave to a son. It scared you, didn't it? Boom, you go from slave to a son, which brings you to a totally new reality. And then there's this freedom that seems to be slow and takes a lifetime. The, the Bible calls these two things justification and sanctification. Oh, big word alert. Watch out. I I was supposed to give the alert before I said it, but there you have it. I alerted you. In justification, you're set right before God. It's it's like the legal action that one day that will make my two orphans my children. Jesus' death in your place is what sets you right. You go from a slave to a son. In sanctification, you're in the process of becoming more like the Father. It's the process of growing in righteousness. Your justification fuels your sanctification. Remembering the fact that you used to be a slave, but but have now experienced the Father's love through adoption, you desire to become more like the Father. 
And, in, and, and this is a process, and it's gradual. You have growing to do. See, the gospel fuels your daily life of growing in Jesus. The, the gospel is just not about your adoption. It accomplishes your adoption, and it's the means by which you live in the reality of your adoption. Let's say next week I, I start a business. It's going to be an awesome business, I promise you. Because it's going to be the business of making snow cones. And it's not just any snow cones. <clears throat> I'm going to start a business of making New Orleans-style snowball snow cones. If you ever have one, you're going to know what I'm talking about. If you guys have any had a snowball snow cones? Oh, we got a couple. They're amazing. They'll testify, I'm sure. So <clears throat> I do this because, I mean, there's New Orleans snow cones everywhere it's at. So let's also say one of my kids wants to become a master snow cone maker just like their father. She, and she wants to take over the business one day. She knows I love her. I've demonstrated my love to her by adopting her in spite of her not demonstrating anything good towards me. I mean, I don't know my, who my daughter is right now, but I still love her and I'm going to still love her. Over the years, I continually show my love to her. She knows I'm safe. She knows she's fully accepted by me despite how many snow cones she might mess up, how many times she pours too much syrup, because you know you, get, you can't pour too much syrup, then it'd be too sweet, and you've got to get the concentration of the, of the, of the, of the uh, ice just right. I write a manual on how to make the most awesome snowball snow cones you've ever had, and, and she reads the manual because just from the fact that I adopted her shows she can trust my snow cone making ability, because again, <laughs> I'm the master snow cone maker. She's gotten, again, she's gotten to know my character, and since she knows my character, she knows she can trust the way I want to run my business. She never worries that she's not my daughter, no matter how much she messes up. So it's a delight for her to stay close and obey me and my expertise. She knows me, and because she knows me and my love for her, she tries to soak up every opportunity to learn more. See, this is, this is similar to the way we respond to our adoption. We respond in obedience because of what God has done for us. We don't sing and raise our hands because we have something to prove to God. We don't read our Bible because we have something to prove to God. We sing and we study because we want to thank God for who He is. We want to revel in what He's done for us. We want to study to know Him more. The things we do for God are done as a response to our adoption. The word disciple in this passage shows that even though we have the Father's approval and we've been adopted, we still have a whole bunch to learn. Our ways are definitely not like God's. and we, I mean, we got a bunch of junk in the trunk. I mean, the word disciple just doesn't mean... I'm sorry, I'm glad you caught that. Good. It's not, you know. This word disciple just doesn't mean following. Even though a disciple did follow, it also meant he was a pupil. Of the teacher. He followed the teacher because he knew there, there were some things that he needed to learn. See, our adoption puts us in a place where we want to know God. We abide in his words. We abide, remain, dwell in his teaching. Since Jesus is God and was with God at the, at the creation of the world, we recognize that he knows how our relationships would work. We recognize that, that, that he knows how we're to live in such a way to be a blessing. How we can live knowing we are free and feeling free. We see his intentions for us all throughout scripture. 
like when he instructs us how to deal with anger, how to deal with worry, and how we're to confidently come before the Father to pray, when you're, re- when you're released from your slavery, when you're free to serve a loving God whom you desire to know, your adoption going from slave to son fuels your desire to obey. You don't obey to be accepted. You're accepted, therefore you obey. Remember sanctification? We were just talking about that. The process of becoming more like Jesus, more like the Father. Through remembering your adoption, you desire to know more about Jesus and why the Father would send him. So you dwell, you remain and abide in his teaching. You meditate and learn the intention that God had for us when he created us. You learn how we are to relate to one another and how to relate to God. And and through your learning this, the junk in the trunk becomes smaller and smaller. The pull of your idols, they weaken. You're no longer drawn to the things that promise great freedom but never produce it. You're drawn to abide in Jesus because he's adopted you and looks on you in full pleasure. So what now? To be honest, I, I didn't really want to give you this last truth that I, that I just went through, abiding. Because I know a lot, of, a lot of people, including some of you, get hung up on that. You feel like you've tried before and it didn't work. Worshiping Jesus just feels like a chore. I mean, but because it is the word, and I'm supposed to preach all the word, God convinced me to preach it, imagine that. Here's what I want you to remember about abiding in Jesus. You will never, ever, ever, ever experience freedom without first understanding God's adoption of of you, God's love towards you in adoption. Your adoption is not dependent upon who you are, how much you know, how hard you try. Doing religious things does not make you a Christian any more than barking, barking like a dog makes you a dog. If you wanted to become a dog, you'd have to have a change of DNA. In the same way, to live rightly before God, you need a change of DNA. You need the DNA of a Christian that's found in believing in God's adoption of you. It's found in believing the gospel. And when you believe, God's spirit will begin to change in you. You see, right now you're enslaved. You're enslaved to the things that will never bring you freedom. If you don't have it, you're trying to get it. And if you don't have it, you're trying to keep it. What do you have to do to make yourself feel like a, not feel like a bum? See, Jesus wants to free you from that slavery and free you to experience the love and the acceptance of the Father. Some of you are finding it difficult to live in the reality of God's acceptance, but you're trying to do it all alone. Because of your adoption, those, those who are in Christ are now brothers and sisters. That means we live like a family. We're to love one another and bear one another's burdens. This is one of the purposes of our community group. So one action step for you tonight is to, is to get into a community group and, and to do it now. You're going to have some guys at the back and they're going to help you get set up in a community group. So don't leave here without talking to one of those guys in the back, okay?